Book six, chapters two to five of ten books on architecture. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. Ten books on architecture by Vitruvius. Translated by Morris Hickey Morgan. Chapter two. Symmetry and modification in it to suit the site. One. There is nothing to which an architect should devote more thought than to the exact proportions of his buildings with reference to a certain part selected as the standard. After the standard of symmetry has been determined and the proportionate dimensions adjusted by calculations, it is next the part of wisdom to consider the nature of the site, or questions of use or beauty, and modify the plan by diminutions or additions in such a manner that these diminutions or additions in the symmetrical relations may be seen to be made on correct principles, and without detracting at all from the effect. 2. The look of a building when seen close at hand is one thing, on a height it is another, not the same in an enclosed place, still different in the open, and in all these cases it takes much judgment to decide what is to be done. The fact is that the eye does not always give a true impression, but very often leads the mind to form a false judgment. In painted scenery, for example, columns may appear to jut out, mutuals to project, and statues to be standing in the foreground, although the picture is of course perfectly flat. Similarly with ships, the oars when under the water are straight, though to the eye they appear to be broken. To the point where they touch the surface of the sea they look straight, as indeed they are, but when dipped under the water they emit from their bodies undulating images which come swimming up through the naturally transparent medium to the surface of the water, and, being here thrown into commotion, make the oars look broken. 3. Now, whether this appearance is due to the impact of the images, or to the effusion of the rays from the eye, as the physicists hold, in either case it is obvious that the vision may lead us to false impressions. 4. Since, therefore, the reality may have a false appearance, and since things are sometimes represented by the eyes as other than they are, I think it certain that diminutions or additions should be made to suit the nature or needs of the sight, but in such fashion that the buildings lose nothing thereby. These results, however, are also attainable by flashes of genius, and not only by mere science. 5. Hence, the first thing to settle is the standard of symmetry, from which we need not hesitate to vary. Then, lay out the ground lines of the length and breadth of the work proposed, and when once we have determined its size, let the construction follow this with due regard to beauty of proportion, so that the beholder may feel no doubt of the eurythmy of its effect. I must now tell how this may be brought about, and first I will speak of the proper construction of a cavidium. Chapter 3. Proportions of the Principal Rooms 1. There are five different styles of cavidium, termed according to their construction as follows. Tuscan, Corinthian, Tetrastyle, Displuviate, and Testudinate. In the Tuscan, the girders that cross the breadth of the atrium have crossbeams on them, and valleys sloping in and running from the angles of the walls to the angles formed by the beams, and the rainwater falls down along the rafters to the roof opening, compluvium, in the middle. In the Corinthian, the girders and roof opening are constructed on these same principles, but the girders run in from the side walls and are supported all round on columns. In the tetrastyle, the girders are supported at the angles by columns, an arrangement which relieves and strengthens the girders, for thus they have themselves no great span to support, and they are not loaded down by the crossbeams. 2. In the displuviate, there are beams which slope outwards, supporting the roof and throwing the rainwater off. 
This style is suitable chiefly in winter residences, for its roof opening being high up is not an obstruction to the light of the dining rooms. It is, however, very troublesome to keep in repair, because the pipes which are intended to hold the water that comes dripping down the walls all around cannot take it quickly enough as it runs down from the channels, but get too full and run over, thus spoiling the woodwork and the walls of houses of this style. The testudinate is employed where the span is not great and where large rooms are provided in upper stories. 3. In width and length, atriums are designed according to three classes. The first is laid out by dividing the length into five parts and giving three parts to the width, the second by dividing it into three parts and assigning two parts to the width, the third by using the width to describe a square figure with equal sides, drawing a diagonal line in this square and giving the atrium the length of this diagonal line. 4. Their height up to the girders should be one-fourth less than their width, the rest being the proportion assigned to the ceiling and the roof above the girders. The ally to the right and left should have a width equal to one-third of the length of the atrium, when that is from thirty to forty feet long, from forty to fifty feet, divide the length by three and one-half and give the ally the result. When it is from fifty to sixty feet in length, devote one-fourth of the length to the ally. From sixty to eighty feet, divide the length by four and one-half and let the result be the width of the ally. From eighty feet to one hundred feet, the length divided into five parts will produce the right width for the ally. Their lintel beams should be placed high enough to make the height of the ally equal to their width. 5. The tablinum should be given two-thirds of the width of the atrium when the latter is twenty feet wide. If it is from thirty to forty feet, let half the width of the atrium be devoted to the tablinum. When it is from forty to sixty feet, divide the width into five parts and let two of these be set apart for the tablinum. In the case of smaller atriums, the symmetrical proportions cannot be the same as in larger. For if, in the case of the smaller, we employ the proportion that belong to the larger, both tablina and ally must be unserviceable. While if, in the case of the larger, we employ the proportions of the smaller, the rooms mentioned will be huge monstrosities. Hence, I have thought it best to describe exactly their respective proportionate sizes, with a view both to convenience and to beauty. 6. The height of the tablinum at the lintel should be one-eighth more than its width. Its ceiling should exceed this height by one-third of the width. The forces in the case of smaller atriums should be two-thirds, and in the case of larger one, half the width of the tablinum. Let the busts of the ancestors with their ornaments be set up at a height corresponding to the width of the ally. The proportionate width and height of doors may be settled if they are Doric in the Doric manner, and if Ionic in the Ionic manner, according to the rules of symmetry which have been given about portals in the fourth book. In the roof opening, let an aperture be left with a breadth of not less than one-fourth nor more than one-third the width of the atrium, and with a length proportionate to that of the atrium. 7. Peristyle lying athwart should be one-third longer than they are deep, and their columns as high as the colonnades are wide. Intercolumniations of peristyles should be not less than three nor more than four times the thickness of the columns. If the columns of the peristyle are to be made in the Doric style, take the modules which I have given in the fourth book on the Doric order and arrange the columns with reference to these modules and to the scheme of the triglyphs. 8. 
Dining rooms ought to be twice as long as they are wide. The height of all oblong rooms should be calculated by adding together their measured length and width, taking one half of this total and using the result for the height. But in the case of exedrae or square echi, let the height be brought up to one and one-half times the width. Picture galleries, like exedrae, should be constructed of generous dimensions. Corinthian and tetrastyle echi, as well as those termed Egyptian, should have the same symmetrical proportions in width and length as the dining rooms described above, but since they have columns in them, their dimensions should be ampler. 9. The following will be the distinction between Corinthian and Egyptian oki. The Corinthian have single tiers of columns set either on a podium or on the ground, with architraves over them and coronae either of a woodwork or of stucco, and carved vaulted ceilings above the coronae. In the Egyptian there are architraves over the columns and joists laid thereon from the architraves to the surrounding walls, with a floor in the upper story to allow of walking round under the open sky. Then, upon the architrave and perpendicularly over the lower tier of columns, columns one-fourth smaller should be imposed. Above their architraves and ornaments are decorated ceilings, and the upper columns have windows set in between them. Thus the Egyptian are not like Corinthian dining rooms, but obviously resemble basilicas. 10. There are also, though not customary in Italy, the echi, which the Greeks call sisizine, these are built with a northern exposure and generally command a view of gardens and have folding doors in the middle. They are also so long and so wide that two sets of dining couches facing each other with room to pass round them can be placed therein. On the right and left they have windows which open like folding doors so that views of the garden may be had from the dining couches through the open windows. The height of such rooms is one and one-half times their width. 11. All the above-mentioned symmetrical relations should be observed in these kinds of buildings that can be observed without embarrassment caused by the situation. The windows will be an easy matter to arrange if they are not darkened by high walls, but in cases of confined space or when there are other unavoidable obstructions, it will be permissible to make diminutions or additions in the symmetrical relations, with ingenuity and acuteness, however, so that the result may be not unlike the beauty which is due to true symmetry. Chapter 4. The Proper Exposures of the Different Rooms 1. We shall next explain how the special purposes of different rooms require different exposures, suited to convenience and to the quarters of the sky. Winter dining rooms and bathrooms should have a southwestern exposure for the reason that they need the evening light, and also because the setting sun, facing them in all its splendor but with abated heat, lends a gentler warmth through that quarter in the evening. Bedrooms and libraries ought to have an eastern exposure because their purposes require the morning light, and also because books in such libraries will not decay. In libraries with southern exposures, the books are ruined by worms and dampness because damp winds come up, which breed and nourish the worms and destroy the books with mold by spreading their damped breath over them. 2. Dining rooms for spring and autumn to the east. For when the windows face that quarter, the sun, as it goes on his career from over against them to the west, leaves such rooms at the proper temperature at the time when it is customary to use them. Summer dining rooms to the north, because that quarter is not, like the others, burning with heat during the solstice, for the reason that it is unexposed to the sun's course, and hence it always keeps cool, and makes the use of the rooms both healthy and agreeable. 
similarly with picture galleries embroiderers workrooms and painters studios in order that the fixed light may permit the colors used in their work to last with qualities unchanged chapter five how the rooms should be suited to the station of the owner one after settling the positions of the rooms with regard to the quarters of the sky we must next consider the principles on which should be constructed those apartments in private houses which are meant for the householders themselves and those which are shared in common with outsiders the private rooms are those into which nobody has the right to enter without an invitation such as bedrooms dining rooms bathrooms and all others used for the like purposes the common are those which any of the people have a perfect right to enter even without an invitation that is entrance courts cavadia peristyles and all intended for the like purpose hence men of everyday fortune do not need entrance courts tablina or atriums built in grand style because such men are more apt to discharge their social obligations by going round to others than to have others come to them Two those who do business in country produce must have stalls and shops in their entrance courts with crypts granaries storerooms and so forth in their houses constructed more for the purpose of keeping the produce in good condition than for an ornamental beauty for capitalists and farmers of the revenue somewhat comfortable and showy apartments must be constructed secure against robbery for advocates and public speakers handsomer and more roomy to accommodate meetings for men of rank who from holding offices and magistracies have social obligations to their fellow-citizens lofty entrance courts in regal style and most spacious atriums and peristyles with plantations and walks of some extent in them appropriate to their dignity they need also libraries picture galleries and basilicas finished in a style similar to that of great public buildings since public councils as well as private lawsuits and hearings before arbitrators are very often held in the houses of such men three if therefore houses are planned on these principles to suit different classes of persons as described in my first book under the subject of propriety there will be no room for criticism for they will be arranged with convenience and perfection to suit every purpose the rules on these points will hold not only for houses in town but also for those in the country except that in town atriums are usually next to the front door while in country seats peristyles come first and then atriums surrounded by paved colonnades opening upon palestrae and walks i have now set forth the rules for houses in town so far as i could describe them in a summary way next i shall state how farmhouses may be arranged with a view to convenience in use and shall give the rules for their construction End of book six, chapter five.